This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now, Richard Moxley, a lead credit mentor. I love that title. Um, you're a guy that's in demand, speaking all over the country. Uh, you you get published in the Globe and Mail. You've been on CBC Market Report and Global TV, locally and nationally. You got a Financial Literary Leader Award for 2015-2016. And like I say, you travel all over and talk about it. You're married. You live in Calgary. We're just so happy to have you on the show, Richard. Well, thank you for having me. Really great. So um, I know, like, credit and credit rating and the rules of credit, that's your thing. That's what you know the most about. Um, what, are the, what, are the biggest, what are the biggest questions or what are the biggest things that you see or you hear from people about their credit or credit in general? So one of the, the best things to start off with, and I hope all your listeners are sitting down right now, hopefully they're not driving, or maybe they probably are driving, but uh, hopefully it doesn't cause any accidents. But one of the biggest things that misconceptions just people aren't aware of is that the credit score that you have access to as a consumer is not the score that a bank or lender uses. Hmm. And I know that sounds really backwards. Uh, So Equifax and TransUnion, they have this kind of funny game where they give consumers one score, so the one that you're paying for is is different than what the banks are using, which is, causes a lot of confusion. Yeah, and is for, it better or reason. worse? Is it better or worse, Richard? That's what I want to know. Uh, you, you sound like we're talking about relationships here, is it <laughs> for better or for worse. But um, it really, it it has it, it really depends. Okay. So it, it's the exact same information that you're seeing, but the scoring metrics that they're using to score you are completely different, hmm. and so it. There's a lot of myths out there and misunderstandings about credit. One, because the scoring algorithm has recently been changed a lot with Equifax in the last couple of years, and TransUnion and Equifax are always updating their score when when they see a need. And then the other thing that throws everything out of balance and a lot of people don't understand is that even though certain banks will use Equifax or TransUnion or both, the score that the banks have is generally a customized version of what the Equifax and TransUnion credit reports are. So even if you're seeing the bank version, the same score that Equifax is sending to TD or the the same score that RBC is, or uh, TransUnion is sending to RBC, that's not what the rep that is sitting across from you is seeing. And so it, it it comes where this this fascination that that we have as a society with this score is really misplaced. And so I, when I wrote the book, my whole passion, my whole goal is to help Canadians get away from this score that's really a moving target and focus on actionable, simple steps that you can take in order to always make sure that you have good credit and stop worrying about what your score is doing, because that's 
there's no way that you can know what your score really is. And I think that's just so fascinating, Richard, because you see all these ads, you know, for monthly credit monitoring, get your free credit score. Um, and, you know, I, I yell at the TV, it's meaningless. <laughs> but but now, yeah. I, now I can tell the listeners. You, you and me both, yes. we're both yelling and throwing things at the TV. Yep. Yeah, so, so it's fascinating. So the actual score that you can get, it's, you know, it doesn't tell you whether the bank is actually going to approve you or not, because they might be looking at different factors and you might be, you know, just playing a different game altogether. Exactly. And and you, there's a lot of free credit reports websites that are out there and, and are advertising that have some have come over from the states but this this idea this fascination with the credit score this mystical score that controls our life uh, unfortunately is this hype is is really misplaced and people are spending a lot of time and effort and money that's unfortunately wasted uh, you could read my book and understand more than you would probably ever want to know about the credit score as opposed to trying to chase this score. Okay, so what do I use then? If I really want to know um, or to see how I'm doing in relation to others or uh, sort of in the big picture, how do I, how do, I do that? So that's, that's where these actionable steps come in and, and the information, you got to be careful because we get inundated with American information that is not applicable here in in Canada and and the banks obviously use different metrics as well so you got to make sure that it's actually information and stuff that's used by the banks uh, but I'll give you an example of one that is another example of how backwards thinking some of these what I call rules of credit or some of these actionable steps that that need to be understood by Canadians and so one of them is you have to be very, very careful about closing or paying off your your debt. And I know that sounds really backwards. We would think that paying off a car loan would show that we're responsible, that we're in control of our finances. But what we don't understand as a community or society, sorry about that, um, so as a society is that the the, the, one of the biggest contributing factors to the score is how long you have had an account or a credit card or a loan open. And the minute that you pay it off, it becomes old, good information instead of good, current information. Yeah, Richard, and so the, if, that, that surprised me so much when I learned that because you hear so many people are counseled. Do you want to get a mortgage? Well, go and you know clear off all of your your credit. They don't want to see that you've got too many open lines. You know, maybe get down to a card just to show hey you, you can manage your credit. But that's completely the wrong advice. Exactly, and and so we want to be very cautious about these things and and why I'm passionate about helping the Canadians understand exactly how that works because I'll. You know, having a history in mortgage financing for eight years, I saw it all the time. People would pay off their loans, and then they'd come and they'd be all excited. I'm ready for a mortgage. You know, I, I don't have any monthly responsibilities. And then I would have to be the bearer of bad news to let them know that, well, unfortunately, you've just kind of shot yourself in the foot, and and we're going to have to charge you higher interest rates because of that, because now the banks see that as you don't have any good current credit or you have limited current credit, and all of a sudden your scores dropped 150 points, which puts your benchmark underneath what the banks want to see. 
So just by keeping those accounts open, that person could have had you know the the rates that they wanted, the terms that they wanted. They they actually you know really did something counterproductive, thinking they were doing the exactly. right thing. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the the advices I know a lot of the the listeners are saying, okay, now what am I supposed to do? Uh, one of the biggest things, other than uh, obviously, I hope you get educated with credits, uh, regardless of whether it's by by the book or or the credit TV, the stuff that I do online, but you you should always talk to a professional in the industry and ask them before you do anything major with your finances ask them ask the mortgage broker or the the mortgage specialist what do i need to do what do i need to avoid make sure you're talking to someone that has been around for a while and can actually guide you through that so that you avoid some of these major mistakes that you'll end up regretting so is there sort of a, a rule of thumb to go by, Richard, if I didn't talk to some, like I'm talking to you, I sort of, yep. I think of you as pretty much an expert on this. Yep. What are some of the things that I could do uh, that would put me in good stead before I make that big purchase or that go into a mortgage or, you know, whatever that step is? So one of the, the things that banks really like to see and they really take an interest in is what you're doing with your revolving credits. Now, revolving credit is anything to do with your credit card. Um, you can look at it with lines of credit, but credit cards are really what banks like to see on a credit report because that's what people mess up the most. And so if you are over leveraged or if you are missing payments or not making your minimum payments or you know, even if it's a, just a $15 missed payment, it just shows that you're not on top of your finances and that shows the lender they can predict the chances of you defaulting on some kind of loan or mortgage much easier than any other type of credit. Because most credit, like a loan, regardless of what kind of loan, essentially all you have to do is have enough money in the bank account and that should be paid off. Now that's not always easy to do, <laughs> but regardless, it's pretty simple. Where a credit card, there's temptation. There's you know, there's the minimum payments, uh, there's utilization, there's all these things that the bank is looking at. And so having at least two credit cards that are well-established and maintained very well, that puts you above and beyond the majority of people out there. So having a credit card or a couple of credit cards, keeping it at a zero balance or at least a paid-off balance monthly, yep. that's going to put me in better stead than than not having them, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, and you don't necessarily have to have them paid off. I mean, it, it is financially much better. You know, uh, it's not very good financial principles to be paying 18 or 26% on, on a balance, but technically you don't have to have them completely paid off, but the lower balances are extremely important when it comes to your credit. Okay. So, Richard, we've just got about a couple minutes left here. Um, I wonder you if you can talk about the clients that I see to a person. Everybody is concerned about the impact of a bankruptcy or a proposal. If they have to restructure their debts, are they ever going to get credit again? Are they untouchable? Does it take seven years? Um, you know, obviously, I can reassure people from what I've seen, but can you give me some of the background here? You know, what's the impact of a bankruptcy or a proposal, and how can people recover and how quickly? That's a great conversation to be having, and it's very, very misunderstood, unfortunately. So, unfortunately, people see themselves uh, as finite, uh, or their credit as finite, and because they were irresponsible or had some issues in the past, 
they kind of assume that they're they've got this label of bad credit and they're going to be messed up continually and a lot of people just kind of put their head in the sand because they're just afraid of what someone's going to tell them the good news and one of the best parts of what i do is give people hope and and one of the the best things that i learned in the mortgage industry was that essentially two years from discharge of any kind of debt program you can get back to best rates and best terms wow. so even though it stays on your credit report for six years yeah. in bc um that's okay within two years of discharge you can still qualify for best rates best terms minimum down payment, CMHC insured or whoever, and and move on with life. Yeah, and I, and I tell clients that two to three year clock, and they, they're just incredibly, you know, happy about that. It's not a life sentence. You recover quicker than exactly. you, you ever did. Yep. Yeah, Pauline? I was just going to say, uh, in wrapping up, uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. It's been great. Uh, pick up his book, The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great C- Credit. Richard's on Twitter. His uh, handle is Average Joe. What is it? Average Joe Book? Is that what it is? Yes. Richard at Richard Moxley at Average Joe Book, also host of Credit TV. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've been doing this uh, in the show previous. It's called Bankruptcy Myths. And uh, we've talked about key myths and misconceptions that, I don't know, pretty much everybody has about bankruptcy. There's uh, so much fear and uncertainty around bankruptcy that so many folks... Um, just kind of stay in debt because bankruptcy is so scary. I mean, the word, we've talked mm-hmm. about this before, the word itself is so scary in, in today's language. And it hasn't changed, right? <laughs> yeah, everything is pretty well designed to scare you the heck away from this legal remedy. Um, and really, yeah, if there was no upside, you would never go bankrupt. Why would you put yourself through it? But when you're dealing with just this incredible, insurmountable mountain of debt, when you're having collectors call you 12, 13 hours a day, uh, when you're worried about being able to feed yourself, let alone your family, you know, sometimes you need a way out. And that's what bankruptcy does. Right. So I think, yeah, I'm really happy to do these segments, Elaine, because I know there are people because they come in and see me in my office and say, you know, I was so scared of this happening and you're telling me it's not going to happen. I wish I'd known that sooner. I would have came in and I wouldn't have suffered for so long. And the first one really, and we'll just briefly go over some of the pieces of it, yeah. um, I'll, I'll lose everything. Yeah, so right? that, that's, that's what people think. That's everyone's, you know, five second um, understanding of bankruptcy. As you go into bankruptcy, you lose everything. Okay, and even myself, you know, before I got into this industry, I thought, well, yeah, you go bankrupt when you when you have nothing left, and even what little you do have is taken from you. You know, why would you want to ever do that? But it's it's quite the opposite, actually. Most people that go through a bankruptcy, they actually keep all of their assets. There's very few things that are seized from them, uh, and the reason for that is provincial governments have legislation that exempts certain assets. Exempt means that you keep them no matter what happens to you. And again, just briefly, there's an exemption for all of your household goods and your furniture. There's an exemption for your clothing. No one's going to take obviously clothes off your back as weird as that would be. You keep everything. Um, There's an exemption for a vehicle if it's worth less than $5,000. And if you have a financed vehicle, that means, you know, do you have equity in that vehicle of more than $5,000, which most financed vehicles, you have zero equity. Um, and you're allowed to keep your tools of the trade. So if you need something to earn income, you know, if you're a musician or, you know, a construction worker, 
worker or a doctor or anything like that, a dentist, you have certain tools that you need, you, those can never be taken from you. So most of the time people think they lose everything in a bankruptcy. Most people don't lose very much. Oh, that's, see, I just think that's so reassuring for folks because, um, because the word is so scary, and, and it's just one of those loaded terms. There's so much to it that people can't even think about it. And the one thing that you know that you mentioned uh, in the beginning is we all know making minimum payments is not going to get rid of this, mm-hmm. right? And that's and that's really important to remember. Oh, yeah. okay. Even a six thousand dollar debt can be forty years of making yeah. minimum payments. So you're not doing anything if you're just making minimums. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's continue on then. What yeah. are the other what, what are the other things that we are that we sort of have built in misconceptions about yeah this one is getting better and better but my god elaine two years ago i was having so many people come into my office it was breaking my heart because they were doing the wrong thing with their rrsps so i think and uh, hopefully we've played a small role in this but i think the consciousness the knowledge base is out there more knowing that rrsps are your retirement funds and they can never be taken from you they can only get into jeopardy is if you start to withdraw those funds, if you start to cash in your RRSPs to pay off your debt, well, then you can very quickly cash in all of your RRSPs and hopefully it paid off your debt, but then you've got no retirement left. Right. So what people a few years ago in my office were consistently coming in and saying, you know, I was told by the bank or I was told by a collection agency that if I don't cash in these RRSPs, they're just going to take them from me anyway. So that's what I did to make the pain stop. And would a bank, would a bank actually say that? Well, one of the big banks, of course, they would never say it corporately, but would an individual agent acting on their own behalf or perhaps even misinformed? Yeah, that does happen. Oh, Regularly it happens. That's we know the, awful. Yeah, we know the banks are being investigated for sales practices. And yes. yeah, I think overall they're very good corporate citizens, but there are rogue actors. And sometimes, you know, the incentive system of who gets a bonus for what can drive bad bad advice to clients. See, and I'm so naive that I think our Canadian banking system is so pure and so clean and Mm -hmm. so innocent of all of those awful things that we read about that happen in other countries. Um, But that's, it sounds like I'm just being naive. Well, and again, not tarring everybody with the same brush, but there are bad actors everywhere. And the answer for the client or for the consumer is just to be informed and to treat your RRSPs as if it was a company pension plan. You can't cash in a company pension plan. If you go into bankruptcy, you're going to keep that company pension plan. Same thing with RRSPs. Even if you had enough RRSP money to pay off your debts, I would still suggest at least come in, talk to a trustee, see what the options exist to deal with the debt, because almost always the wrong answer is cashing in your entire retirement. You pay off the debt. And then you know what? A couple of years later, you might be back in debt and you don't have any retirement to fall back on. Exactly. Okay. Uh, length of time that a bankruptcy takes. Yeah. So another big myth is, you know, bankruptcy takes years to complete. Um, you know, I hear people saying it's going to be seven years or 10 years or more. Um, and the facts are for 80% of people, bankruptcy runs for nine months. So less than a year. Wow. Not even a year. Yeah. Not the six, seven years, not, you know, multiple years for the average person who files for bankruptcy, who's not earning a whole lot of money. They're considered low income. They've never been bankrupt before. They're in bankruptcy for nine months. Okay. Where the six or seven years comes from is after a bankruptcy is over, there's a credit rating impact of six years after the bankruptcy is finished, but that doesn't mean you're untouchable. Most people rebuild their credit within just two to three years of a bankruptcy. If you phone up any mortgage broker and you just say, hey, hypothetically, if I went into bankruptcy, how long would it take for me to qualify again for a mortgage? They'll say, well, if you did everything right after the bankruptcy, if you didn't miss any payments and you saved some money and you've got a decent income, literally two to three years, you could have dealt with a horrible financial situation, rebuilding your credit, and then suddenly be mortgage worthy again. Very good. Um, Another myth Mm -hmm. or misconception 
is that um, somebody's going to come to my house and yeah. go through my stuff and tell me what I can and cannot keep. Exactly. I have a number of clients, and sometimes this really comes from various, um, you know, different home countries. So perhaps recent immigrants. Um, you know, in certain communities, I know if you file for bankruptcy, there's literally someone that comes to your house, does an inventory, puts a red tag on your door, a red tag on your furniture, and things like that. Um, if I had to visit everybody's house who filed a bankruptcy with me, I'd do nothing else other than visit houses. Sure. Um, so it's just something that's not done. Right. So a trustee is never going to visit your house. Um, a trustee is going to basically depend um, that this is a serious legal process. You're going to be swearing an affidavit in my presence saying, I have legally disclosed everything to you. It's full and complete to the best of my knowledge. And again, from my experience, people that I deal with, they're honest. They're just unfortunate. Things have happened to them. And, you know, if they had the Van Gogh hanging on the wall or the baby grand piano in the living room, that's been long sold to try to pay the debts. Right. So, you know, essentially bankruptcy depends on the individual to be honest and to clear their assets fairly. Um, but a trustee, as a matter of course, does not show up at anybody's house. And it's to their advantage to tell you everything. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Right? Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think I have too many clients who don't tell me 100%. But yeah, if something comes to light later on in the process, well, then, you know, they suddenly lose that that presumption that they're honest, but unfortunate, yeah. they've been in a tough situation. If it looks like, you know, they're trying to use a bankruptcy for personal gain, um, you know, the courts can, can kind of sniff that out over time. But, you know, less than a percent, maybe a tenth of a percent of the people that I see would be anything other than, you know, honest, but unfortunate people. What about um, What about if your situation is that you're, uh, wanting to move, change residences for whatever reason, whether it be yeah. work or a family situation, or you just want to get out of Dodge mm. uh, and live maybe a, a more simply life, a simple life, uh, or travel if yeah. you want to s- see something. Yeah, and, and people have an assumption that you know if you file a bankruptcy, well, you surrender your passport or you you lose any right. rights, you know, to change jobs or to have interprovincial mobility or things like that. Essentially, you're surrendering a bunch of your rights as a Canadian. It's like a mo- it's like a mo- it's like scenes from a movie that we've yeah. all seen, right? Yeah. That well, you have to surrender your passport. Yeah, if we could put together that composite movie of how bankruptcy is portrayed, exactly. my god, it's all wrong. It uh, is. No, the answer is there's zero impact on your passport, zero impact on your citizenship, your ability to travel. There's no direct link that I've ever seen and I would know of anything with our customs and border patrol and whether somebody owes money or is in a bankruptcy or not. So oh. you, you don't need to be concerned, you know, if you were in bankruptcy, if one of my clients says, "Can I travel?" travel, I say, well, yeah, sure, as long as you can afford to do so, because obviously there's no credit anymore. But if this person's able to save a bit of money and do a bit of traveling, no issue for me as long as they've complied with the bankruptcy. Now, I know this is, uh, and we're just, we've got just a few more seconds, but it, and that, so that's moving or or traveling across the border as well, right? I mean, it seems that the border officials seem to know so much about Mm. us, but they wouldn't necessarily know that. No, absolutely not. Excellent. If you'd like uh, more information from Blair from Sands and Associates, check out their website, sands-trustee.com on this or any topics that we cover on the show, or call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this is a regular segment that we've been doing, 
talking about real people in real situations who you've helped out. We talk about the housing market a lot and have over the months, but there's a huge segment, and this is, I think, really significant for our listener to pay attention to, a big segment of our population who rent, Mm -hmm. who are directly impacted um, by this retail market or this housing market, but don't even have a, a hope in heck of ever getting into it. So what are the kinds of things that renters, um, or what do you think the kinds of things are that renters face on a regular basis, Blair? Yeah, so I, I'm really happy with this segment of links. I called, you know, the monthly client roundup. So we'll talk about a couple general things that we're seeing, and then I'll give you a couple of detailed examples of people that we've helped. And yeah, definitely from the general point of view, rental costs are escalating like crazy these days. It's really blowing me away. Um, you know, I've been with Sands, you know, almost 10 years now. Um, and when I joined, you know, we were always benchmarking people's costs, you know, basically about a third, you know, 30 to 35% of your after-tax take-home income. Um, that's a good best practice in terms of how much you should be spending on rent. Um, I've been just keeping track in the last couple of weeks, and there's almost nobody I've seen in my Vancouver office that's actually spending that amount of money on rent. Most of the time, it's north of 50%, if you can believe it. And that's crazy, because that's a formula for not disaster, but not for somebody who wants to save money and have a decent kind of lifestyle doing the things they love to do. 50% is a crazy amount of money, especially in rent. Yeah. And if, you know, just throwing out some real numbers here, like I'm seeing folks that are, you know, maybe netting $2,400 per month of, again, after-tax take-home pay, and their rental cost is $1,300 or $1,500. Like, it's it's just astronomical now. And, and, you know, people are doing it because they love living in Vancouver, uh, but for how long is my question. So I, you know, I really get uh, a little discouraged as I think in the long term, you know, house prices went up massively and the rental, you know, rental rates, of course, had to increase as people have to be able to get their return on their investment. Uh, but I just don't know where it's going. I'm seeing so many clients north of 50%. So yeah, I wish I had some upside here, but but other than that, yeah, it, it's it's not it's not a good thing in Vancouver right now with rental costs. Well, I think, I think reality is really important. Mm-hmm. I think the more that we face reality, the easier things can be, right? Because there's yeah. no sort of happy pie in the sky kind of way of looking at it. Now, the other thing that you noted here is about student loans. What yeah. do we need to pay attention about that for those renters? Well, yeah, and, and this, so not necessarily con, um, specific to those who rent, you know, those who own their, their home as well. It could could be, but what I'm seeing is that individuals are a lot better informed these days that they actually do have some options about student loans. Nice. So I'm having people come into my office and, you know, I start to go through, well, there is a seven-year waiting period from the time you were a student to when you can actually restructure that debt. And we start to talk about it and they say, you know what, Blair, we're aware of that. We did our research and now, you know, it's been seven years and two months and we know we can now deal with this debt. Oh, interesting. So anyone that's listening out there that, you know, might be thinking, hey, government debt or student loan debt, if you got yourself in over your head and you're just not making enough money to service the debt, you might think there's nothing that you can do, but absolutely there are options. And as soon as it's been seven years since you were last a student, and there's even some exceptions for five years, so definitely talk to the experts here, but as soon as it's been seven years, student loans is like any other debt. It can be restructured. It can be reduced or eliminated with either a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. Excellent. Okay. So let's talk about um, a recent client of yours, Mm -hmm. a heavy equipment mechanic who lost 
his business or yeah. just doing business? Well, he lost his business. Mm. Um, so that's the most gratifying part of my job is I get to meet, you know, just incredibly diverse people and almost to a person, they're honest people. They've just had some bad things happen to them. And they just need some help. So in this situation, um, you'll be well aware, we'd all recall a couple seasons ago, there was an incredible wildfire season. There were entire mm. communities that were destroyed. And obviously I'll protect my client's confidentiality and not tell you the exact community, but this is a place that was just decimated. Right. Um, he was 45 years old, came to see me in Vancouver. And what happened was, you know, a couple of years ago, he had lost all of his business due to fire. Um, and he did, you know, what he thought was the right thing to do in those situations. Uh, what he did was every dollar that he had, he paid to his employees. He paid them out their vacation pay. Mm-hmm. He paid them out, you know, their severance, even though perhaps he wasn't legally obligated to do so. He tried to keep all of his suppliers um, whole. You know, it's again, small town business. You don't, your name means everything. But the challenge was the money that he should have paid to CRA by the letter of the law. It just wasn't there at the end of the day. He had, you know, basically diverted it off to do the things that he thought was morally right. Um, and that definitely makes makes you feel better. But at the end of the day, um, CRA had, had started to garnish his wages. So okay. he came to see me in Vancouver and CRA was taking 30% of his take-home pay. Wow. Yeah. And, that's, and that's CRA. And then there's all the other costs of just living, which yeah. is crazy. Yeah. And, you know, he's a very, you know, very well-skilled individual. Sure. So he had his own shop, you know, where he was living before. And now in Vancouver, he's working for someone else. So, you know, he doesn't have the risk of having his own business. But, you know, when he gets his paycheck, 30% off the top um, is going to deal with, you know, a massive CRA debt. When he came in to see me, we had estimated it was probably about $90,000 and he had total debts of about $115,000. That sounds uh, like a really enormous challenge to take on. Yeah. What how did you help him solve this? You know, first thing we do is we just, we get a sense of the situation. So we met for a good hour. We understood everything that happened in the situation and what was the current current status. And we figured out right away, we've got to stop this garnishy. As we mentioned, you know, people paying so much money for rent. You can imagine if you're only earning 70% of what you're really entitled to, um, you know, he's get he was getting further behind each month. Um, you know, like any of my clients, if there's an ability to avoid bankruptcy, most people are pretty interested in hearing about that. Um, and that's exactly what we tried to do here. So we filed a consumer proposal. So we met pretty intensively over a couple of weeks, got all the information together. Uh, and then we figured out that of his $115,000, he could probably afford to repay about 29% of the total. So about $33,000. And we structured that in monthly payments of $550, uh, which immediately was less than what he was losing to, to see. So as soon as he filed the proposal, I was able to stop the garnishee, stop his wages from being taken. And the proposal we offered was $550 a month, which wouldn't go on forever. A proposal by law can last only as long as five years. So it wasn't the rest of his life he was going to be dealing with this tax debt. Uh, It was actually going to be a proposal that if CRA accepted, it was going to be done within five years, him paying back about 29%. So that sounds like happy ending to me. Well, you would think so, but but not always that straightforward. Oh, isn't it? Well, what sometimes happens too is, you know, we do our proposal based on our best estimate of what's going on here. So there were a few things that were still outstanding. There were some returns that hadn't been assessed. And originally we thought the CRA debt was about $90,000. What happened was CRA came back to us and said, well, now we've already assessed everything and the number isn't 90000 anymore. It's actually $388,000. I'm, <laughs> I'm surprised the two of you just didn't kind of faint at that point. Well, I... 
I've been down this road before. And what, what we said was, you know what, we're just going to take it one step at a time and we're going to say, you know, we know what you can afford and, you know, you can't afford four times the proposal you're offering. You're offering them five fifty a month and that was for about $90,000 of debt. Everyone's got to be reasonable here. Yes. And I have conversations with CRA all the time where the substance of it is I'm a taxpayer, the individual's a taxpayer and so is CRA. Let's do what's best at the end of the day for the overall recovery to taxpayers while still being fair to the individual involved. Okay. So we went back and we looked very closely at his budget. And, you know, we thought we had used a pretty sharp pencil before to figure out, you know, 550 per month was what he could afford. Um, but, you know, we knew if we, if we don't do anything here, if the debt has really increased, that CRA is not going to be willing to accept the proposal. So we looked again closely at the budget. We even, you know, spoke to some family members who said, you know, maybe we can we help. We have some dinners together or different things like that. You know, we can offset some of the entertainment budget and things like that. So we got a bit creative. We increased the proposal from $550 a month month to $750. And that's a pretty big jump. It is. Yeah, yeah, it's taking him from 33,000 to 45,000. Yeah. But let's remember the debt went from 90 to 388. So, right. And I was uh, just thinking about the monthly payment mm-hmm. of 550 to 750. Right. So, uh but yeah, on the grand scale of things, if that's what the proposal ended up being worth with 45000 mm-hmm. then that's not too bad. Well, yeah, because originally we were offering him or offering to the creditors about 29% of the debt, which yes. anyone that's listened to our show for a long time, I'm always saying, you know, it's 30 to 50%, maybe 20 to 40, something like that in the ballpark of a proposal. We were right there. But when the numbers get so big, um, you know, again, him offering 30% of almost 400000 that's just not going to be in the cards no matter what. Right. Um, so his revised offer that CRA accepted, again, at 750 per month was for 11% of the total debt. 11%. It was wow. accepted. He's working to pay it off. Again, from everybody involved, this is the best possible result because he could have went into bankruptcy and it would have been close to a zero recovery for everybody. He wanted to avoid that. Again, very honest, ethical gentleman, paid all of his last dollars to his employees and didn't even want to leave the government hanging either. But again, reasonably, this is what he could afford and everyone's happy at the end of the day. I, I, I just think it's like a perfect solution for I know I know consumer proposals work for so many people but this is like perfect for this guy yeah. because he did all the right things yeah. tried to do everything right all the way along um, and to be rewarded this way with this kind of proposal, that's that's really a good news story. Yeah, and, and you know that's why I'm talking about it here today because, again, I see a lot of clients all the time, but there are some that you know stick out to me about a situation where, like you said, Elaine, the solution was the right answer to the problem. It was reasonable, and we just got to an excellent outcome here. Excellent. So moral of the story? Well, moral of the story is, you know, even if tax debt seems like it's insurmountable, if it's a massive number, and even when we get, you know, thrown some curveballs later on, you know, if we thought the debt was one thing, but the number actually changes, don't lose hope. It's almost every case we can still reach a good a good settlement with a consumer proposal. Nice. Okay. So number two example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one a, a little bit um, less going on here, but I still think something that's useful or interesting to our to our viewers. So this was a 32-year-old gentleman who came in to see me, very stressed about his debts. He wasn't sleeping. All he was doing was thinking about all the money that he couldn't pay off. When I asked him, you know, what's your objective for coming to see me? He just said, I just need to make the, st- the stress stop. It's killing me. And again, 32 years old, working well, had a, had a good income per month. Uh, he had gotten into trouble due to overspending and a bit mis- mismanagement. He said, you know, I just didn't pay attention in my 20s. I'd go out, I'd put the card down. I wouldn't care too much about it. And he had came to see me with $38,000 of debt, including some credit cards, lines of credit, and some payday and installment loans. 
He was earning about $3,500 a month, uh, which again, should be pretty good. But all he was doing was paying minimum payments, being all stressed out and not sleeping, not eating. It was going down a bad direction. Right. So a solution for him once Mm -hmm. you went through everything. Yeah. So right from the first meeting, I could see he was starting to, you know, breathe better, you know, more deeply, really (laughs) calm down, understanding, okay, there is some hope here. There are some other options. Uh, We filed a consumer proposal in his case to repay $16,800 of his $38,000 of debt. So in this case, about 44% of the total, so a little on the higher end of what we usually do. But more in line, a little more in line with what your average is. Yeah, typically, yeah. Yeah. Again, usually we're in the 30 to 50% mark. So about 44% of the debt was repaid. Monthly payments of $280 he could easily afford on his $3,500 a month income. No stress, no collection calls, just a really good, reasonable solution to his situation. Excellent. So if any part of these stories about real people, uh, if they sound familiar or they resonate with you in any way, go see Sands and Associates. They've helped these folks get out of debt. Um, and that's, and with a consumer proposal. And if you haven't heard about that before, then that's even one more reason to go see, uh, Blair Manton, Sands and Associates. They've got offices all over British Columbia. For more information, check out their website, sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about ways to save money. And these tips aren't from Blair or from a book or from an author, but they're ideas that Blair's put together from real people who have had to deal with serious money issues uh, and get out of debt either through bankruptcy or consumer proposal or whatever. In any event, there are people that have come to Sands & Associates to get some assistance in doing this. And he's come up with a great list of things that you can do. Um, And this is what's the first one you want to talk about? Yeah, the first one, just because I think it's so important and it's something I'm pretty passionate about. It's the idea of banking for free. It's that, and to put it simply, I don't think anybody should be paying a monthly fee to the banks for their daily accounts. But don't we have to? You would think so, but no. Really? I haven't paid a bank fee, and God, it's going back to the late 90s now, um, because there are so many options for no-fee bank accounts, and I have yet to find any of my needs that can't be met by a no-fee bank account. Okay. So uh, my background is I was with President's Choice Financial for you know about 20 years or so, and they've just changed this past year to Simply Financial, so S-I-M-P-L-I-I for anybody who's going to look it up. Um, and this is something that's not heavily advertised. I'm convinced the banks don't want you to know a whole lot that these things exist. And especially with President's Choice now not being the brand, you wouldn't necessarily know about it. Right. But Elaine, no fees ever for the account. Every month, I don't pay any fees. Really? I can use CIBC bank machines anywhere that they are with no extra fee on top of that. Uh, if I need to deposit a check, I can either you know go to the bank machine, CIBC, or like every other bank these days, you just take a picture of it with your phone. Okay. So when I sit down with clients and they're budgeting, you know, $15 a month for bank fees or $20 or $10, I say, you know, you can do that. And if you want to be with one of the big banks, you know, for whatever you think that gets you, that's fine. But if you want to have a quick way of putting, you know, 10 or 20 bucks back in your pocket each month, go to a no fee bank account. Okay. So, and it's not just banks, it's credit unions as well. There's mm-hmm. fees built into credit union stuff. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is finding 
finding the places where they don't charge fees, mm-hmm. not just deciding not to pay the fees that are being charged, because that's what I thought you were saying. Oh, good, good luck with that. Yeah, no, no if you signed on, they're going to get that money from, from your account. Um, Here, I thought you had some sort of magic way of getting out of paying that. No, not that I've Funny. ever heard of, but no, just, just just don't play the game, essentially. So again, Simply is one that I have a lot of clients who've, who've, who have used it, and I tend to recommend it. Um, Tangerine is another, again, a virtual bank, no branches, but that means that you don't pay any fees. And I believe EQ3 is even a, a new one as well, So there's or EQ Bank. There's, there's just so many that are coming up right now. Um, but again, not heavily advertised, something you need to look for yourself, but save yourself the money. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, we've talked about setting a realistic budget, mm-hmm. uh, selling stuff in your house that you no longer use, but could have value to somebody else. And the fact there's so many places you can do that. Uh, keeping shopping lists before you hit the hit the stores, always a great one. Um, what about drinking more water? I thought this was very um, environmentally friendly of you mm-hmm. and healthy of you to include in your list. Yeah, it, it seems just simple, but there's really a lot that, that, that really comes from here because, you know, just being hydrated every day, uh, it just helps you in so many ways for your health benefits. Um, you know, you're going to think more clearly, you're going to be more healthy, your skin's going to look better, all that stuff. But also from a financial point of view, you know, if you're going out, out to, to eat or to drink, where does a restaurant make most of their profit? It's on the alcohol or alcohol. even on the, the soft drinks as well. You know, yeah. even if it's two or three bucks, it's, you know, two or three cents of actual cost of what goes in there. Exactly. Um, and if you're just pretty focused on, you know, all I need is tap water. Well, tap water is never a charge. So even, you know, fancy restaurants, you might pay, you know, five or eight or $10 even for, you know, a bottle of sparkling or, or a flat spring water. Um, you know, Vancouver, we've got incredible tap water, Victoria, all, all of that. So, you know, we really don't need to be concerned about getting bottled water. So save yourself the funds, drink lots of water, you know, carry one of those reusable water bottles, which don't have to cost a whole lot of money. And that's a really good environmental tip as well. Yeah. It's crazy. Definitely don't, you know, don't invest in all these disposable plastic bottles. Now I've heard recently, don't leave them in your car because the chemicals can leach out. And Absolutely, like that. yeah. So, they they yeah. just re, it's yeah, yeah with the heat. Oh, yeah, yeah, brutal. Yeah, so drink more water. Everyone will be better off. Okay, um, staying with the um, uh, what we consume in our bodies, avoiding prepackaged and fast foods, and this isn't just for the health benefit of it, mm-hmm. but the cost. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it takes a bit of discipline because you got to plan ahead. But the idea of planning out your meals for the week and then figuring out how you're going to use your leftovers, even if you're a single person or a family of two, um, you know, you could have lunches, you could have some leftovers, different stews, different things like that. So you have a lot more versatility if you're cooking for yourself and then again, dealing with, with what, what's remaining at the end, uh, rather than if you're buying prepackaged foods, which usually very high in salt, again, yeah. a lot of, you know, disposable packaging is just going to end up in the landfill. Um, and if you're not buying your lunch, or sorry, if you're not bringing your lunch to work, well, then you're buying it every day, and that can quickly add up as well. You know, even if you're reasonable and you know eating fast food, you're probably not doing the best thing for your health, and you could definitely save some money if you were to make your own meals and bring them to to work or to school. Yeah, no, those are really those are really good, uh, really good suggestions. Mm-hmm. They do definitely take a bit more work, a bit more planning, uh, but at the end of the day, it's just so much better for your uh, pocketbook as well as your digestive system. Mm-hmm. Uh, bad habits. Hard, hard to quit yeah. when you're feeling stressed about financial difficulties. 
Yeah, I think that there's no clients that have come into me, you know, they're at the end of their, their rope and I tell them they should also quit smoking. Right. You know, it, it's just not going to happen if they're dealing with so much financial stress, you know, sometimes the smoking or ideally to a lesser extent, but even alcohol, that can be a bit of a, of a coping mechanism and neither are healthy for you no. uh, physically and obviously neither are healthy for your bottom line, your pocketbook as well. Um, so again, not trying to make value judgments on anybody. I've got smokers very close to me in my family who they'll never quit and that's just their personal choice. Yeah. Uh, but when you sit down, you add up exactly how much money is being spent on, you know, a pack of cigarettes or half a pack a day, uh, very quickly, that money being redeployed elsewhere um, can really solve a lot of financial problems and can give you a whole lot of pride too. you know, the pride of being somebody who's, you know, quit smoking and, you know, the X number of years or someone who's quit drinking in X number of years. Um, you know, it, it's something that you can take pride in saying, well, not only do I have a better financial situation, but also from my health point of view, um, you know, I've beat the nicotine addiction or the alcohol addiction or something like that. So yeah. there's huge amounts of support that exist out there, uh, you know, for anybody who's ready to take the next step. Um, but again, it's something the person has to be ready for. And if you're in an incredibly stressful situation, um, you know, that might not be the first thing that comes to mind, but definitely something that is worthwhile to investigate. And remember, just so you don't think Blair's up on a big soapbox, these are suggestions that came from real people, real clients um, that he's had a, had the privilege of, of working with over the years uh, to get out of their financial difficulties. And these are their suggestions. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember to turn off the lights. I love this one. Yeah, so it's like you can hear your your mom or your dad just echoing in the in the back of your mind. You know, turn off the lights when you leave the room. Um, it can add up over time. Obviously, not going to be the difference between you having to do a consumer proposal or not. No. Uh, but it does speak to just having that consciousness that you know, if I'm not using something, if I'm not getting benefit from it, whether it's turn off the tap, turn the lights off, you know, close the fridge door, turn off the stove, different things like that. Uh, it all speaks to just a broader sense of just really, you know, if you watch your pennies where they're going, obviously the dollars take care of themselves over time. Yeah. You You've included investment in quality as part of this list, uh, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, and, and this, you've got to be a little bit careful, but, um, you know, probably most people can think of a situation in their life where they've had various options where they could buy something that was a little bit more expensive, uh, but hopefully would have lasted longer, and they opted for the less expensive option and had to replace it, you know, two, three, or multiple times. Um, so, you know, if it's something like a nice pair of shoes, you might think, well, this one costs a little bit more, but if you're going to wear it for 10 or 20 years, you're going to maintain them the right way, well, then you'll be better off than having bought, you know, five cheap pairs of shoes in that same sure. amount of time um, that, you know, you'll just cycle in and out of. So look for quality where it makes sense, um, but, you know, don't be married to just because it's a designer because it's a lot more expensive that it's actually better quality. You really need to look more at the build, you know, where it's from, what are the materials. Yeah, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, avoid impulse buying. It's kind of a no-brainer, right, that you would do that. Mm-hmm. But it's so easy to do that uh, t- in today's, you know, sort of retail climate that we live in. Yeah, and, you know, just one little tip on this. I know we're getting bumping up on the end here, Elaine. Yes. But, uh, you know, just one quick thing, and this is what a client said to me, just three words, shop your closet. Nice. So before you go out, look through everything you've got there. There may be things you haven't worn or different combinations. And if you, you really inventory your closet before you go out, you'll be less likely to have an impulse purchase because it'll be top of mind, fresh in your mind. What do you actually have at home? And you don't need two of that or three of the other thing. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin. That's Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.